Carl and Heather, thank you so much. It would be awesome if they'd come out with a way to like record stuff like that so that we could like take some of it home with us. Like maybe put it on a little disc or something. If somebody would invent that. No, do you all have any CDs with you today? You can get him on iTunes, all right? I asked him if he had any CDs. He said, we may have some in the trunk of the car. I said, no, I don't mean like other people's CDs. I mean like yours. <laughs> We're glad y'all been here. Thank you so much. Um, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews this summer. And in case you're here for your one and only time, they are available on iTunes. You can just go on Garden City Chapel and... And listen to the podcast if you want to catch up or uh, go back and listen to some previous ones. But the title of the message is The Last Will and Testament. And I knew this week I'd heard of some strange wills. We've got some lawyers in our, our group. Joe, have you written some strange wills? Really, very much so. So I maybe should have talked to you. Pat, I know you probably, you wrote mine, so you've written some strange wills. Last wills and testament. Let me just tell you a few of them. William Shakespeare died in 1616. His last wish was that his wife receive his second best bed. No mention of his first best bed. I don't know if he's planning on coming back and using it or thinking, I don't want her to have that. Charles Dickens died in 1870. His last wish was that mourners who attend my funeral wear no scarf, cloak, black bow, long hat band, or any other such revolting absurdity. Benjamin Franklin died in 1790. One of his last wishes was that in a democracy his daughter not engage in the expensive and vain and useless pastime of wearing jewels. Now, fortunately, we got a little more information about Benjamin Franklin. He was one of the most admired men in the world. The reason for his odd request was that a former ambassador to France had given him a portrait of King Louis XVI in a framed studded with 408 diamonds. So he didn't want her getting, I guess, his frame afterwards and uh, taking the diamonds out of it and using it for jewelry. You've probably heard Harry Houdini died in 1926. His last wish was that his wife hold an annual seance so he could reveal himself to her. He never did. Napoleon Bonaparte died in 1821. His last wish was this, that his head be shaved and his hair divided up amongst his friends. I left you some of my hair. John Bowman died in 1891. His last wish was for dinner to be prepared every night after his death, just in case he came back to life. And so seriously, he left $50,000 in a trust to pay his servants to keep up his housework in his 21-room mansion. He also requested that a daily meal be prepared in case the family returned hungry. The will was honored until the trust ran out of funds in 1950. So for like 60 years, he had servants making a meal that he never came back to eat. And I know some of you have heard of Leona Helmsley. She was known as the Queen of Mean. She had inherited all of her husband's money, billions of dollars. She donated $35 million to charities in the final years of her life. But her good deeds were overshadowed by instructions to establish a $12 million trust to her dog in her last will and testament. Keeping in mind, she had given $5 million each to her grandchildren. How would you like to be on her grandchildren? Wait a minute, we got $5 million, her dog got twelve. Now, later a judge did reduce that amount 
down to $2 million. And part of the provision of her will for her grandchildren to get theirs, their inheritance was they had to visit the gravesite of their father at least once a year. Now, there's other weird, absurd wills out there. The one we're looking at this morning is not that. It is the last will and testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an inheritance that you, if you're a child of God, are set to receive. And so I want us to really understand what the will is all about. So looking at Hebrews chapter 9, we'll pick up in verse 15 and read through verse 17. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. So my first point is this. Death is required for inheritance. Now, I remember a conversation that I had with Reverend Norton several years ago. And if you, if you didn't get to meet Reverend Hal Norton, you really missed meeting uh, a, a truly gracious and loving man who, who loved people more than just about anybody I've ever met. But he would pick at you. And, uh, in fact, if he didn't pick at you, you needed to worry that maybe he didn't like you or something. We were traveling, I think, to a funeral. And he told me about a man that had told him, he said, Hal, I'm leaving some, an inheritance to the chapel. I'm leaving a sum of money at my death will transfer to, to the chapel. And Al said, well, there's only one problem. And he said, what's that? He said, you look too healthy. Now, if you knew how, you'd understand that. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? Well, the chapel wouldn't get any of that until that guy died. And it was going to be a few years because he looked too healthy. Well, there has to be death in order for an inheritance to take place. He starts off by saying, for this reason. And what he's about to do is unpack for this reason. He's just described the death of Christ in the previous section. And the fact that he is a mediator of a new covenant. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But for that reason then, because death has taken place, there's something else that's taken place. And that is the redemption of those Old Testament saints that had for them laid up this eternal inheritance. A redemption had taken place. The, the saints in the Old Testament were operating under a system of sacrifices that never truly forgave sin, certainly never removed sin. It only covered sin for a short time. We, we've talked about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's the one day that all of Israel would come together, all the Hebrew nation would come together, and they would watch the priest go through this ritual every year. The first thing the priest had to do was offer sacrifice for his own sin before he could then walk into the Holy of Holies and represent the people of God before God to ask forgiveness for their sins. Some of the interesting things are, first of all, the only sins, only transgressions that were really taken care of were unintentional transgressions. It might surprise you to know throughout the Old Testament there was no provision for intentional sin. If you committed a sin on purpose... The law was pretty strict. In fact, they said, cast them out of the camp. If somebody's guilty of breaking an infraction and it's not unintentional, cast them out of the camp. But for unintentional sins, they can offer sacrifices. In fact, you could really offer sacrifices daily in the temple, and it, that was done. 
But on Yom Kippur was that day you came and all of your sins were covered. You know, you ever felt like you've, you've tried to confess your sins and, you're, and then you pray this prayer, God, for any sin I can't think of. Well, that's kind of what they did at Yom Kippur. But all it did was covered the previous sins. So what happened the next day? Your sins weren't covered. They were piling back up, waiting for another sacrifice. And yet what was going on in the Old Testament was a parable. It was a picture of what God intended to bring to fulfillment in the death of Jesus Christ. That had been His purpose for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system. In fact, they were committed under the first covenant. And these are the ones that were called to receive the promise. I love this. The inheritance was not restricted to a nation. It was restricted to a class of people, the called ones. We're included in that. If you're a child of God, it's because you've been called of God into His kingdom and into the family. And so you've got an inheritance waiting for you. We're going to open just a little bit of it today and see what that inheritance includes. It was an, in, an eternal inheritance. Literally a perpetual, never-ending inheritance. Now, it took Christ's death for the Old Testament saints to recognize that. So you're thinking, well, wait a minute. How was, it, how was their righteousness counted to them? Their righteousness was counted to them as righteous because of their faithful obedience. What were they doing? They were obeying God. They were obeying the law that God had given them. So to look back and say, well, that was bad is, is not true. It wasn't bad. It was from God. But it was incomplete. So here's what God was doing throughout that picture of the Old Testament, literally over a thousand years, of offering sacrifices, sometimes daily in the temple. The sacrifices could be bulls. It could be goats. It could even be pigeons or doves. In fact, in some cases, it was not an animal sacrifice. It could be a grain offering or a wine offering or a, an oil offering. All of that was a picture of what was coming, and that was there's an eternal inheritance. And the people in the Old Testament became a part of that because of their faithful obedience. We'll get to more of that later in the book of Hebrews. But where a covenant is... And here some translations now use the word will. Up to this point in the book of Hebrews, most translations have translated this Greek word as covenant. In fact, in verse 15, it's translated covenant. In the next couple of verses, 16 and 17, a lot of translations translate it will. It's the same word, but what's happened is this. The context has changed. The context up to this point has been more of a religious context. Now we're shifting in verses 16 and 17 to a legal context. And so it's literally a will. It's a covenant between God and man that's basically said, here's my intentions. Here's my will. It's only valid with death. Until death, the benefits and the provision of the will are only promises and future. The folks, somebody may tell you, hey, I'm leaving you something in my will. It doesn't mean anything until that person dies. It takes death. And it's not enforced until then. But let me just share a few things that are active because death has occurred. Jesus Christ died on the cross. At that moment, consummation took place. The will could now be opened and explained, and we become inheritors of that will. A lot of things, but just a few things. Number one, forgiveness. Forgiveness. The word forgive in the, Old, in the New Testament means to send away. So our inheritance in Christ, one of the things we inherit when we come to faith in Christ is we are forgiven. Our sins aren't just covered, they're forgiven. I want you to see the difference in that. Covered means you never truly forget about them, and God never promises that He's forgotten about them. He's just, He's covered them. 
in the New Testament, God's promise is he will forget. Not He doesn't forget our sins. It's really better than that. He remembers them no more. See the difference of that? God doesn't forget because he's not forgetful. But God chooses to remember our sins no more. So, folks, you are forgiven. Let that sink in a minute. If you're a child of God, you're now a joint heir with Christ. God sees you with the same righteousness that he sees with Christ. You're forgiven. Another thing, you can have a clean conscience. In the Old Testament, your conscience was never truly cleaned. You could walk away on Yom Kippur and go, okay, my sins are covered. But you knew what was coming. And you couldn't forget. You now have peace. Peace with God and even peace with yourself. You don't have to fret. Paul put it this way in Romans. He said, at the end of Romans 7, he's talking about, I wish I wouldn't do these things, and the things I wish I would do, I don't do. Oh, woe is me. We get to verse 1 of chapter 8, and he says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have peace. We have purpose. Our purpose is to live for God and glorify Him. And we have eternity in heaven. Folks, I think that's even a concept that Old Testament saints did not truly grasp. That's been unpacked a little bit better for us in the pages of the New Testament. And that is, because of my inheritance, one of the things I inherit is eternity in heaven with God. Let's look at the next thing that is essential, and that is blood is essential for forgiveness. Verses 18 through 22. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And those five verses, the word blood is used six times. And in our culture, it seems a little gory and we don't get it. What he's unpacking is in the Old Testament, Moses, when he established the tabernacle in the wilderness, he cleansed everything by sprinkling it with blood. And so the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. It was inaugurated with blood. And Moses used blood to sprinkle, to cleanse everything in the tabernacle. He sprinkled the tabernacle, all the vessels in the tabernacle. And it says in verse 22, almost, you could say almost all things are cleansed with blood. What does he mean by that? Blood was essential for forgiveness or blood was essential uh, for having your sins covered. But there was a provision in Leviticus. If somebody was so destitute, they couldn't afford an animal, even a bird. In a rare instance of that, that you... Absolutely couldn't afford that. There was a provision in the law where you could bring some pure flour of wheat and use that as a symbol for the blood. But he goes on to say, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. No blood, no forgiveness. Forgiveness, freedom, pardon. Your sins have been sent away. Why is that? Why is there so much talk of blood in the Bible? Well, two specific reasons. One, it emphasizes the seriousness of sin. Do you understand God hates sin? So the instance of blood, the instance of death shows how serious sin is. I think there's some, some, sometimes we can get flippant and realize, well, God, Jesus has forgiven me, and we get flippant about our sin. 
So we need to understand the seriousness of it. We also need to understand the costliness of forgiveness. We're big on grace is free, but folks, grace had a cost. It didn't cost us. It was free for us. But it cost Jesus his life on the cross. So the costliness of forgiveness. I love one of the quotes that I read this week. It was a story of an old man, a doctor, who was a doctor in a very small town in America and had a lot of patients, and some of his patients couldn't afford to pay. And so he had written on their ledger, forgiven, paid in full. Well, at his death, his wife discovered his ledger and realized there's a lot of people owing him money. So she took him to court. And the judge says there's not a court in the land that is going to charge them with anything that he forgave them of. I thought, folks, that's the same thing that's true about us. We are forgiven because of the blood of Christ. And there's no court in heaven that holds anything else against us if the blood has been applied to our life. Because of the shed blood of Christ, He has paid the penalty for my sin. And then the last thought is this. Jesus is better. He started off the passage in verse 15 by saying that He was the mediator of the new covenant. Then in verses 23 through 28 following, He says, Therefore, it was necessary... For the copies of the old things in heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What does all that mean? Well, starting with the beginning of the passage, he is the mediator of a new covenant. I want to share a couple of words with you. Jesus has done something that no other person could do. He's both the testator and the mediator, or in our terms, we call him the executor. Who's the testator? Who, if you design a will, you create a will, it's your will, you're the testator. You're the one that has laid down the testament of your will. It's your last will and testament. But you can't possibly mediate it because once you die, somebody else has to be the executor or the mediator of the will. What has Jesus done? He's done both. He's the testator. He's the one that described the will. But he also, because not only did he die, he rose from the dead. He's now the mediator of it. What's a mediator? A mediator is someone who acts on behalf of both parties. Isn't that cool? Jesus acts on behalf of God, but he also acts on behalf of us. In fact, do you recognize that what Jesus is doing right now at the right hand of the Father is He is constantly interceding before the Father on our behalf. He's the mediator and the testator. He talks about this, the commands of Moses that were spoken. Moses not only spoke them, he wrote them down. Not just the Ten Commandments, but hundreds of other laws. It's necessary for the copies to be cleansed. The, the copies was the New Testament tabernacle and ultimately the New Testament temple 
was a copy of what was already in heaven. It was a shadow, as he's used that word earlier in the book of Hebrews. But the perfect holy of holies is heaven itself. And Jesus appears for us there. To appear for us literally means Jesus is in the face of God the Father for us. In fact, he takes us with him there. One of the things that the children of Israel had never done, they had never been in the holy place, much less the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a 15, and the tabernacle was a 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot high cubed room. And the high priest got to go in there once a year, really once in his lifetime, but one time a year. Jesus is now in the Holy of Holies, and he's taken us with him. In God's economy, he already sees us as being there. We are seated with him in heavenly places. And so Jesus represents us. He's in the face of God appearing for us. And he never has to repeat the sacrifice again. The Old Testament priest had to do it day after day after day. And on Yom Kippur, they had to do it year after year after year for over a thousand years. In fact, it's estimated that in that thousand plus year stretch, over one million animals were sacrificed in the tabernacle and the temple. And you know what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 80 is, hey, those things are fading away. In fact, they're eventually they're going to become obsolete and cease to exist. We believe the book of Hebrews was written about five years before A.D. 70. What happened in A.D. 70? The temple was destroyed. The sacrificial system was ended and hasn't started back. Why? Because it's obsolete. They didn't need it anymore. Why? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled perfectly the picture of the Old Testament. By dying on the cross. And he only had to do it one time. Because the benefits of it last for eternity. He didn't enter a temple made with hands. Man made. But he entered into heaven itself to appear for God for us. He enters the heavenly place. Not on his own. Or or the the Old Testament priest couldn't enter into these holy of holies with with blood that was his own, he had to take the blood of an animal. Jesus enters with blood that is his own. And he did it to put away sin. To put away, to cancel, to annul, to treat it as if it never existed. That's how clean you are before God. You've been pronounced righteous. And then verses 27 and 28 as we close is this. Knowing all that, understand we have an appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die. The word appointed means to be reserved or laid up. There's one appointment that all of you will keep. If you're bad about being late for appointments, you're not going to be late for this one. There's an appointment coming, and that is our death. If you're still alive when Jesus comes back, you might escape this. But folks, until Jesus returns, you're going to die. I don't know when that's going to be for you. I don't know when that's going to be for me, but I know it's coming. There's an appointment that we will keep. But here's the truth. You only die once. So what about people that believe in reincarnation? Well, that is totally outside of biblical truth. And I've even met Christians that somehow believe in reincarnation. I'll give you one popular one, Gary Busey. Gary Busey claims to be a believer. Yet he believes he's, he's lived like 28 lifetimes. Now, if you've listened to Gary Busey lately, you realize he's crazy. And I say that charitably. He had a motorcycle accident a few years back, and uh, I don't think he was wearing a helmet. And he's, his, he's suffered brain injury. And so, yeah, on the one hand, he claims to be a Christian, but he also claims that he's 
coming back. What is the purpose of all that? The Bible said is it appointed unto man one time to die. And then what happens after that? The judgment. You're not coming back. Why would you want to? As a Christian, when I die, what does the Bible say? In the next moment, I'm in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't want to come back. And by the way, I'm going to tick some of you off. I'm also not checking Facebook. I see a lot of people that are writing things to people that are dead. Do you really think they're, white? they're reading your Facebook messages? Now, that may be therapeutic for you, so don't stop doing it if it's therapeutic. But, folks, we can put signs up on the interstate. We can put, make Facebook messages. We're not in heaven checking out Facebook. More about that when I get to chapter 11. It's appointed unto man once to die. Then after that, the judgment. And here's the good news in verse 28. Christ was offered only once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time. This time for salvation. The first time, He took care of sin. The next time He comes without any reference to sin. Why? Because He has dealt with sin once and for all. When He said on the cross, it is finished. It's finished, folks. He died once for all. And He is coming again. And who's He coming back for? Those who eagerly await Him. Let me tell you the Old Testament reference there. When the Old Testament high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the people outside kind of held their breath almost. Now, he wore this special garment that had bells on the bottom of it. You know why they had bells on the bottom? They wanted to hear him moving around in there. Because there had been instances in the Old Testament where the high priest or, or somebody unauthorized had gone in there and had not come out. In the case of two young men, they became two piles of dust because, or ashes because flame came out from the ark and, and devoured them. Because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They were unauthorized. Shouldn't have been back there. They kind of just nonchalantly walked into the presence of God. And so the people were wait. Because what, what's that priest doing? He's representing them before God. And if they, he messes up, it means their sins aren't going to be covered. So when the high priest would exit, they would breathe a sigh of relief. And realize he must have done it right because he survived the process. Well, the same is true for us that eagerly await him when we see Jesus finally face to face. We recognize he's coming back for the church. He's coming back for those who are his. And folks, what a glorious day that will be. Second Timothy says this, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Jesus is coming back. When will it be? I don't know. Only the Father knows. But you can be certain that he's coming. And he's coming for his own. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what a powerful passage and message to understand what you've done at the cross. And Lord, we don't understand the Old Testament picture that was painted for over a thousand years for the Old Testament people. We, we really don't get that whole sacrificial system. We, we catch a glimpse of it through the pages of the New Testament in this writer of Hebrews. But Father, what we do catch a glimpse of is this, that Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And that in Him, and only in Him can I be forgiven. 
and my sins be separated from me as far as the east is from the west, and would you remember them no more? Lord, thank you that is true in Christ. And Lord, we look forward to the day when our high priest, who's representing us right now in the Holy of Holies in heaven, our high priest will return to take us to be with him. We finally get to go behind the veil into the presence of Almighty God. And we eagerly await that. Thank you. Father, it is awesome to see what you've done for us. God, would, may we catch a glimpse of that today. And would it change the way we live our lives tomorrow? Would it even give us a passion, Lord, to tell other people about what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has done for them? Thank you for that truth in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed week.